If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity. Because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. We heard this very loud and clear in the interviewees is be the change you want to see in the world. You know, there's a lot of the people that we, we interviewed that are managing contingent workforce that it started these great kind of pilot programs, but didn't get that um, mandate from uh, up top. So there's a lot that you can do within your span of control and you don't always need permission. The need for greater equity is amplified now more than ever. A cultural shift is happening in the workforce and the world with a pandemic, a recession, and protests about racial injustice. On this episode of Breaking the Bias, Consciously Unbiased founder Ashish Kashal sits down with two special guests, Terry Gallagher, president and CEO of Gallagher and Consultants, and John Schroeder, principal of Nova Foresight. They are the researchers behind our new report, The Future of Diversity and Inclusion in the Contingent Workforce from Higher Talent and Consciously Unbiased, powered by SIA. They talk about why focusing on diversity and inclusion should not stop with your employed workers because your contingent workforce is a large part of your company culture. And those workers hold a big opportunity for you to take a giant positive step forward when it comes to advancing inclusion and the sense of belonging. Now onto their conversation. Can you guys share why this project was uh, important both professionally and personally? I'll start, you know, as a WBE, uh, it's not happened often, but I have experienced bias, you know, being asked, like, is this your husband's company, things like that. So I think a lot of progress has been made, but there's an opportunity to do more. And um, I was personally very affected by what happened in the George Floyd incident. And not just this one incident, but it really brought to light how we can make assumptions about someone because of their gender, race, sexual orientation, that are not only incorrect, but in some cases dangerous. And so I wanted to do something meaningful and tangible. And so, as John said, SIA reached out and uh, Mike Cleland actually recommended me to SIA. So I jumped at the the chance to like do something. And then the other piece of this is that, you know, we're a workforce solutions company focused on helping to integrate the alternative workforce. but to see this workforce recognized as just as vital as a traditional workforce and looking at DNI inclusion for this workforce in particular is massive. You know, having worked on a lot of big Fortune 500 new product launches and, and worked with tech and so forth, all the work to me has been fascinating and I've loved it, but I haven't felt on a lot of that work that I've had the opportunity to make a contribution. And, and you know, as, as, as she says, you've taught us, the moment is now. And in this work, I believe, has the opportunity to make a, a real and significant change in the workforce. So to me, the exciting part is if we do this right, if we did the study right, and if we found what we thought we would found, that we could have the opportunity to make a difference in a really critical moment in our nation's history. Yeah, absolutely. Like we've been talking about diversity with clients for a long time. There's been all these barriers. And I think part of it is there are some legal barriers, but I think we also found that those are they're not insurmountable, right? And so I think part of it was that people just didn't know where to start. I think this really kind of helped them find a roadmap or a playbook on how to do that, which I'm so grateful that you guys were part of this. <laughs> um, did you guys learn anything about each other in this project? <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid to say anything. So John, I don't know. What do you think? This is okay. where I find out, like John's like, my God, I'm not working with 
Okay, so I, I did learn something about Terry. So and vice I knew, versa. I knew that Terry was smart, that Terry is a thought leader in the industry, oh. and Terry is a visionary. And in this project, I learned all those things were more than true. Terry is also very passionate about diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and I should mention for you and for your listeners that this is Terry volunteered her time for this project over the course of a few months and, and at least several weeks of work. So, you know, you're putting your money where your mouth is. So it's I, I find that very, very impressive. Oh. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I thank you, John. You're very sweet. Um, this is why we're still working together. I, I was really surprised how quickly John came up to speed. This is an industry that took me 20 plus years to learn. And he had a crash course and had to figure it out in two weeks and how quickly he was able to kind of jump in and understand this workforce dynamic and why it's so different from permanent talent and some of the nuances and then be able to translate that in, into this project and come up with a tangible report. But then really to echo what John said, completely this was a labor of love for both of us because he budgeted out a certain amount of hours and time gave that to SIA, boom, we're done. And about halfway through, we used all our hours. And so it was like, let's just keep going because we cared about it and we wanted to get this done and we wanted to do it right. And there's a lot of midnight calls and not just with us, but you Ashish and Buried SIA and you know everyone else that was involved, the interviewees, this clearly was a labor of love. No, I know. I definitely kept pushing more people. I'm like, interview this person, interview this person. <laughs> You did. We're like, okay, no problem. We got you. <laughs> we just wanted to get a perspective from everybody that we could. Yeah, um, completely. What's the most surprising thing you learned in the course of doing the research? I'll, you know, I'll jump in. This was kind of, yeah. this came from John and his kind of research geeky side, but, you know, he kind of was sharing some of the stuff that he came up with, some of the different stats that he pulled, McKinsey and Harvard, and that there were real tangible bottom line results to adopting a DNI approach. And this isn't just fluff, but that, you know, he came up with some stats that having strong DNI um, approach, you outperform competitors by 36% in investment success. 22% um, of those that were echoed in the report had very um, tangible results around, you know, bottom line results. And then more importantly, in the report itself, the leaders and laggards, um, the leaders had very, tangible bottom line results as far as like performance and attraction strategy. And then I think the other piece of this is how many orgs wanted to, were really compelled to go beyond just bringing on diversity suppliers, but looking at the diversity population that this was a huge catalyst for that. But I think the, the most powerful thing for me is that they're true bottom line results too. And we proved it over and over and over. And, and if I can echo what, what Terry said. So I entered this you know, from outside the industry, from outside the DNI world. And I didn't know what the answer would be in terms of, you know, is there a real tangible impact for diversity and inclusion? Clearly there's a moral imperative given what's happened in our country. But as we did the research, just to be clear, the business case is proven and it's proven conclusively. Terry cited a McKinsey study, there's an HBR study, there's literally hundreds of study that look at the corporate outcomes, whether you look at profitability, return on investment, team performance, or what have you. And virtually every single study shows that DNI companies that are leaders in DNI have outsized performance. So this this was a bit of a surprise to me. And the idea that as we hear this talked about uh, in the press, it's is as if it's not a proven concept. And that's just that's just not true. What we came on to do in this project was to understand whether this relationship 
held true in the contingent workforce. Uh, and of course, that's what we found in the course of the re research. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think, I think the beautiful thing about this research is a lot of the stuff that's out there that companies are doing with, with diversity is more on damage control and PR, right? And so it's 100%, a nice percent. Yeah, it's a moral imperative, which it might be important to them, but they're it's still ultimately they're not moving the needle fast enough. And I think this really showed you how to measure diversity and and see the ROI on it. So that so that look, ultimately businesses do things for the right reasons, but they also do it because it has to make some financial benefit to them, right? And so we connected the dots here. I think with that, which I think was important. Well, and I think you have to prove it. You know, in the audience that we talk to, this audience in particular wants very tangible metrics. Definitely. The other thing that was actually really surprising to me through the evolution of this report, and I started thinking about clients that we've implemented training and then the hiring process and stuff is that you really can't, like traditionally procurement does all the contingent labor in a box. They do the negotiations, they decide what the, the process is gonna be and they decide how to measure it. And if you really wanna get a solution here that encompasses diversity within contingent labor, it's the first time I think companies are actually have total talent management where you have to pull DNI in, you have to pull HR in, you have to align mm -hmm. full-time diversity hiring with the temp. So it's all one cohesive strategy. So it brings all the parties together. And I think it's gonna sort of make people cross-pollinate and actually see ROI just from that, that process. What were some of the misperceptions you guys came across during the interviews? Did I take this one, Terry? It's all so, you, John. So we had we had ten in-depth interviews with experts in the industry, practitioners, and consultants. And one of the subjects that came up in every single discussion was co-employment, right? So I just do this as an exercise. If you type in co-employment to Google right now, and you know how Google has the AI suggested responses to finish your phrase, the second response you'll get is lawsuit. And so on everyone's mind is the lawsuit and particularly the Microsoft case from 1996 about the employee stock purchase plan where they ultimately uh, were ordered to pay $100 million to some of their you know, contingent workers. So because of this, uh, companies have essentially frozen. Many companies just don't know what direction to pursue. And you know, as we were talking before we got on, on, the, on the air here, that there's a lot of different interpretations as to what the employment law is. One of the great things about this report is we have a lengthy section from an expert in employment law that points out from his perspective, that points out the various points of law that address this. And, and not only that, but he has a, an extensive set of footnotes about a page with very specific citations. So this was a big issue, a big misperception, and I think something that people are going to need to overcome in order to, to make this all work out. Yeah, no, I think I'll add to that too is, you know, how do you capture the data was the biggest pain point. And we were able to determine that there are ways to capture this data legally. So you remove that fig leaf as far as the reason for not, you know, capturing this information. And I think the other thing that was really powerful to me is that the extreme polar, polarization around this. We had one camp that was very much conservative, wanted to do this correctly, very concerned about employment law, how do you capture this data. And then there was this whole other camp that was like, get over it, you know, that the risk of not doing this right and not having strong DNI um, practices are going to be more litigious for you than worrying about the data. So a lot of passion on both sides of this, for sure. Yeah, I mean, definitely hope that this helps squash in the co-employment risk. <laughs> I know you have an opinion on it as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I wrote an article last year about it and said, all the things we do to manage co-employment risk that we own anyway, 
is right. being systemic discrimination, right? And so that risk is bigger. Like if I, I was almost to entitle it, you're, you might be systemically creating me two moments in your organization if you're managing co-employment in a strong way. Because <laughs> essentially that, if, if I lay off a contractor that I've been not treating well because I don't let them come to a party and I make, them, make sure that they feel like they're a second class citizen and do all these things to them and then let them go because the project's finished, and there's really nothing wrong with that, but then they can come back and make a claim and say, hey, you were discriminatory towards me, right? And that's gonna have a bigger issue on your stock price than, than the risk you already own anyway. Were there surprises regarding who should own the tracking and capturing this data and then how it should be used? So when we first started, you know, the, at least from my perspective, the go-to would be the VMS, right? Where you capture them there. But of course there's all these um, legalities around data privacy and, and how you capture that. So the, the report really trended towards the supplier community coming out as key, you know, and being able to kind of track, not only track this data, but putting in processes and, and strategies to attract more minority candidates, because that really kind of starts with them. And then even more importantly, some of the, um, the interviewees that we talked to is that they were shifting towards looking to the supplier community to say, what are you doing to attract more diversity candidates? What does your outreach look like? And some even went so far to say that if there's, they're not going to bring on any new suppliers that don't have some kind of process and strategy around this. So Shish, you live and breathe this. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on it, you know, how you feel about this kind of falling on the supplier community's shoulders. I mean, I think it makes sense right now because I think like the problem is that, like for example, if I work with a de defense contractor, right? The defense contractor, so the government says we can't mandate asking these questions, right? Right. Discrimination. But then if I want to be a de defense contractor to maintain my status, I have to provide this on a quarterly basis to them, right? So the laws are kind of conflict conflicting. So I think they need to, I mean, one of the things I want to try to do with this new administration is change some of the policies. And I have some friends that are working there. So we're going to try to use this report and say, here's a playbook of the barriers that people are using to not do something. And how do we make that, turn that intent into action, change some of the, the legal arguments around this. So I think for the short term, you have to let, um, staffing agencies roll up the data and send it, send it to them. And it's going to probably be somewhat of a manual process, but um, long-term, hopefully we get around that, you know, but I also think it's also important that once you have this data, and especially with the staffing companies, if they have this data, we need to check to see what their processes are to make sure they're inclusive, right? Because if it's, once you're informed as a staffing company, if you don't do anything about it, you're taking your own risk on that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's wonderful that you guys have like taken that extra step and embraced this and, and doing it right. I think that there's a lot of providers out there that want to step in that water, but may not be approaching it the right way. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there's roughly 5.9 million workers, contingent workers in the US. According to the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics, how might advance, advancing diversity and inclusion for the segment of workers create greater belonging in the workplace culture overall? And I'm gonna have a second question around that too after you. So this is all John, as soon as I read like data and stats, <laughs> I'm gonna shut up and let John run with it because this is his sweet spot. <laughs> yeah, well, I, and I would throw this actually back to both of the two of you, but the, 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 oh. the thing that I'm learning as I, as I get deeper into this industry is that this idea of a separate workforce who are your contingent workers and who are your employed it's a fiction, right? This is something that's going to change over time and more and more we need to think about the workforce as a total workforce. Yeah. So we've got this section of our workers who we're not going to do any DNI with versus this other larger section that we are, that that doesn't make any sense. So in order to have an active DNI program, we need to recognize this group that's larger and it's getting more important over time. So 
to it just it doesn't seem that there's a choice in able to be able to have a successful DNI program a choice but to include the contingent workers. A lot of the report talks about how you tie diversity data with your BLS statistics, right? So the question is, if you use that data, then like look at historically, there's no women in technology in the 60s. You use that data to find that there's essentially a propagated systemic racism. <laughs> what are your thoughts around that? I have more, John is, you know, obviously has an opinion on data, but I think that being able to track some kind of like baseline of before and after and being able to look at, you know, efforts that you're making, is this really making an impact? You know, there's a lot of companies that are worried about reverse discrimination if they use data the wrong way and we're only targeting a certain demographic is that, you know, can that put us in hot water? So I think data could be, um, it can be, a tool, it can also be an albatross. So I think it's just how you leverage it and how you're managing and measuring what you're doing now versus what you're doing in the future. Don, you probably got an opinion on that since you're- Well, my opinion is, is around how to use the data. And yeah. the report, so I think we'll talk about this later, I would imagine, but the report provides a roadmap, but a roadmap doesn't, it's not, you know, it's not Google Maps, so it's not telling you how to get there. And the only way to get value out of this process is to to leverage that data, to measure it, to understand the causals behind it. So, you know, if you're making changes, you, you need to understand whether those are having an impact in, in exactly. your numbers, right? And that's the, that's the one thing that you know, companies need to start doing and they can't do that without having the data. And in fact, when we looked, looked at the difference between the people who are leaders and laggards in the industry, perhaps the biggest difference was the fact that those who are leaders are tend to be satisfied with their measurement systems and the laggards are, are very dissatisfied. So I think you brought up a good point. It's not just about, it's about acting, measuring, and then, and, and then iterating, right? Because mm -hmm. you're going to get this right the first time, necessarily. And so we have to adjust and say, where's the issue? So now we're measuring, maybe there's not enough pipeline of candidates, or maybe the issues are not people who are trained in that skill set that you want to expand, or maybe it's that the hiring manager is not receiving mm -hmm. an open mind in any training. So I think they have to sort of do what what they should do with the data is actually make sure they don't just say hey i'm doing it and then just leave it at that yeah it's your compass it's your dashboard you need data to know where you're flying to it's like being a pilot without an instrument panel right you got to use it wisely i mean just think of it, it's like an accounting system right it just tells you you know how much of my oh. new product have i sold how much of my existing right. products have i sold what is the profitability of that all that data needs to be visible in order to have a real impact on and, and learning and you know versioning these programs yeah. yeah and i think one of the great things about this report too is that the last six pages essentially are tear sheets for the legal department and for procurement to have a, a project plan essentially and the first part is the how and why we got there what's your biggest hope for the outcome of this report? You know, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, again, this was a labor of love for me personally. And I think that it's used to create a more inclusive environment to measurably drive more diversity hires within the alternative workforce, that the after picture has more diversity hires. And then also, you know, COVID and the George Floyd incident has created an environment where the minorities are the hardest hit. Hands down, minorities and women have taken it on the chin. Bottom line, you know, within, you know, over the past six months. And so to me, employment's a very powerful antidote to that. You know, if you've got a way to really reach out and employ diversity candidates, give them income, it's vital to turning all of that around. When you have income, when you have a job, 
you feel empowered, you can do things. And I think that that's the antidote to a lot of what's happened in COVID is give people an income, give them a job. And you've got to be able to embrace that community and create um, a way to reach out to them and include them in your hiring processes. And I, I would completely agree with all that. In order to achieve those ends, I, I hope we can accomplish three things in the report. One is to pr prove the business case conclusively, right? It's, you know, if you look through the report, it's very clear that those who are leaders in diversity and inclusion are achieving superior outputs. So any question about that should be put to bed. That in turn, we hope, will get senior management on board. Then secondly, provide a clear roadmap. You know, like, a, as I said before, like a physical map, it's not necessarily going to tell you how to get there, but at least it will show you what the landscape looks like so people can start to take that first step. Mm -hmm. And then I think as a big part of that, we hope that the section on the co-employment will start to debunk some of those myths or at a minimum point people to the particular legal arguments or the case histories that they can look into more deeply as they face a particular issue. So all those things work, then I think we'll reach some of the outcomes that Terry had talked about. Yeah, absolutely. No one likes to be called a laggard. So what's the first thing they should do to sort of get out of the laggard space? <laughs> Read this report. <laughs> and, you know, there's some really very tangible, even in like the multiple choice questions, there are tangible things that the leaders have done to um, get out of this space. Like, for instance, even when we were interviewing some of the subjects, a lot of the, the people that we were interviewing when we approached them to create this report, and I'm probably jumping ahead here, but they had already started on this track. George Floyd and all these things that happened were not the catalyst. They'd been doing this for a long time and really doing these kind of micro things to create a more diverse and inclusive environment. But some of the things that they were looking at were when working with minority suppliers or providers is, you know, creating payment terms that are a bit more agreeable or going above and beyond and making sure that they are, if they, they need a little longer to fill a rack because of what's going on, give them that time. So it's not you know, giving them an unfair advantage. But like I know as a woman owned business and when I started out and I was working with clients and it was like 90 day payment terms and I had to go pay, you know, consultants, that's really difficult. So just making those micro changes. But um, John, you were more in the data, so. So stay tuned to think about that question. One is when you ask people what they expect to be doing in the years to come, Almost everyone is saying they're going to focus on DNI efforts among their contingent workforce. So this is something that's coming, whether people like it or not. It's it's. So the second part related to that is we, in the cases where senior management is not on board, it's critical to get them to buy into this. So now we've got the business case proven. We know that this is coming. So it it seems to me to be reasonable to to use that as ammunition for the management to get on board, and, and they have to be on board. Um, we used in the in the report a, a quote from Peter Drucker. He said, "Culture eats strategy for breakfast." So you can have these great ideas and great plans, but unless it's built into the fabric of your your culture of your organization, it's just never going to be executed. You know, if you see an opportunity to create change within your org, and reading this report and deploying some of those things, don't wait for permission. You know, none of these folks did and had great results, and then they were instrumental in creating this playbook. Oh, absolutely. And what, sir, that reminds me, what's the, one of the most creative or interesting things you heard from people in terms of what they want to build? Because I know that we all, we all had different ideas around how to deploy the program. I know Keisha from Splunk had some interesting things on how to bring disabled candidates into the programs and stuff. So did you hear anything that was like, wow, that's really interesting and we should try that? 
I think it really just some of the things that we heard is working with the supplier community, you know, asking them what kind of initiatives that they were doing to create more diversity hires, changing, you know, looking at the payment terms. I think, John, you probably, you're a little bit closer to the data, but those were some of the things that I saw. Well, I think one of the things that came out of this is the importance of seeding your talent pipeline, given yeah. that this is going to become more important, right? And everyone's going to be going to the same same partner. So it's very important to start to foster the relationships with the people who can supply diverse talent. And that's one of the strategies that we heard over and over from the folks that we just And one thing, Ashish, I want to say for you too, and you may keep this or edit it out, I'm not sure, but, you know, when I first started this project, I didn't really know much about Consciously Unbiased. I I knew that it was something that you were doing. You talked about it. And I really didn't understand a lot about it. And frankly, I thought this was just an interesting angle or as a marketing strategy for you. And I thought it was a smart marketing strategy, but I believed in the movement. And when I got involved and I got deeper into the project, the thing that I learned more about you is that um, what led you to create this movement, that this is personal for you. You know, that it's not a marketing play. It's not an angle that you genuinely want to remove bias from the equation. And we need to be aware of it first, right? And that we all have it. And I found that I had it too. And so um, I think that it's really important that people be aware of that. And the fact that you've invested your own money and your own time to create this movement way before the George Floyd incident, I just think that it's really inspiring. And so it's changed the way that I look at my own bias and it's changed the way that um, I see we could do so much, all of us individually, there's so much opportunity. So it's been an amazing project and um, I wanted to share that with you, but you're the real deal, you're legit, you mean it. And it's been inspiring. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've learned so much in the course of this project and as I think of consciously unbiased, I just think that the, 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 the old thing that kids were taught to do is you put one hand over your eye and look straight ahead and then to the right, yeah. you know, you've got this blind spot, right? But no one knows they have a blind spot until their hand disappears. So unconsciously conscious or being conscious of all that means just opening both eyes up so you can negate the blind spot from one eye using the other eye. And that's, you know, that's exactly what you're teaching in, in, in your in your work. Yeah, no, thank you guys. That's really important to me. It means a lot. I mean, I think the one thing I learned earlier was if you just take a little bit of the thread and pull it, and each time you, you start un- exposing things and people start changing behavior, and I think it takes a village to sort of make change happen. And so very early on when we started this, I got out of the way, right? When people started taking ownership of it, I let them just go and interpret the way they want. And so you and I, Terry, talked about, like, I think one of the next frontiers of, that we want to take on is um, mental health in the workplace and discrimination around that, right? Because I don't think people think about that, right? Like if I get in a car accident, I broke my arm and I called you and said, hey, I can't come to work this week because I broke my arm. You're like, okay, cool, got it. Take, take care of yourself. Come back when you're healthy. If I call you and say, hey, I'm stressed or I'm going, feeling anxiety, mm-hmm. that's a career-ending move at this point, you know, and that shouldn't be that way. Completely agree. And I think it's been very stigmatized. I think you tackling that would be welcomed. And because it's so prevalent, um, I agree with you. It's the next frontier and I would support it. Yeah. Whatever help you need. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. This is amazing. And working with you guys to build this report was unbelievable. Um, It was such a pleasure and a journey that we did together. And I think we'll do more together as well. You can learn more about our amazing guest and get show notes at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. 
please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on iTunes and Spotify. And drop us a note to let us know if there's a topic that you'd really want to hear about or a guest that you'd love to see on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.